And if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Ezra. We'll be looking this evening at Ezra chapter 3. Previously we looked at Ezra chapter 1, and although we'll make reference to, I thought it the greater part of wisdom not to read and study through 70 verses of names and numbers. I'm glad that it is in the Scriptures as it it gives us an understanding of how the Lord's people took that seriously, but to keep with the flow of the narrative, I thought we would move on to chapter 3. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. This is the very word of God. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua the son of Zozadek with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of, God, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josedek made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come up to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upwards to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and brothers And Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel." And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, 
so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, we we ask, O Lord, this evening that You would teach us from Your Word, that You would teach us not only how others have laid the foundations, but Lord, how You would have us lay the foundations for Your kingdom in our own neighborhoods. Lord, bless us as we hear from You in Your Word. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a younger man, there was an incident that happened in America that was long looked forward to. It was an event that was to occur and had not occurred in some great period of time. Many of you will remember it as well. It was the celebration of the American Bicentennial in 1976. And there was a great deal of fervor around it. The thing that I remember most is staring into my my small television set at home and seeing the grainy image of the tall ships coming in to New York Harbor as a, a reminder of what our past had been, a reminder of how America had been built. And what was wonderful about it was not just the aspect of the founding of America 200 years later. There was an aspect in which America was, quite frankly, in decline. Those of you that don't remember, the 1970s were among the darkest of decades in this century. Inflation was rife. To get a mortgage, you'd have to pay 15, 18% interest. It seemed that the Soviet Union was winning everywhere all over the globe as countries were falling. People were out of work. Not only was gas expensive, you couldn't find a place to buy gas. I remember having to drive with my father over to Canada to buy gas. It seemed like America was never going to be the same again. And then there was this this celebration, this period of hope that caused us to think once again that we would be all right. That we had come this far already and it was time now to pursue the American dream again. Things like that don't just happen in the history of nations. They happen in the history of the church as well. We like to think of the church as one big steady upward climb in glory and influence. But that is not the case. The history of the church is filled with great peaks and deep valleys. And this is a period of time in one of the darkest valleys of the history of the church. We might even say that there is a sense that the church of God didn't exist at this time. As it was so tied with the nation of Israel and worship was so tied with the temple and neither of these things was in existence. They were scattered abroad trying to keep alive the embers of flame waiting for the promise of God. To be fulfilled. Well, now we're seeing those first glimmers. It's like on those dark, rainy days where the sun begins to peek through the clouds. And I don't know about you, but it's 
there's something about it that makes that even more glorious than a big, bright, sunny day to see those beams come down through the darkness. This is the story of Israel as they begin laying again the foundations for the church of the living God in Israel. And what I would like us to see briefly this evening are three things. Three things that are centered around the worship of God. Because after all, that is the center of the church. The church exists to worship the living God. And the first thing we will see is the priority of worship in the lives of these pilgrims. The priority of worship. And then the second thing that we will see is that there is work for worship. I think that's something that we have lost in the modern church. The idea that work is related to worship. And if we are to worship aright, we must roll up our sleeves and do the tasks that God has placed before us in the kingdom. And then the third thing that we will see is that there is a mixture of praise and sorrow in this refounding. The priority of worship, work for worship, and praise and sorrow. Let's begin then by looking at the beginning of this chapter 3 to see the priority of worship. And the first thing we see is that the Israelites are now faithful to the task at hand that God has given to them. They have arrived back from Babylon. This has taken perhaps as much as four months to journey. Think about that. They make the decision to go back, and it isn't one or two or three day long road trip. No. It is four long months before they arrive. And they arrive in Jerusalem, and they don't arrive to a a fanfare. This is not a movie or a fairy tale. They don't drive up and Disney World is there waiting for them. They show up in Jerusalem. And you can imagine, they wander over to an old neighborhood. And they knock on the door. And they say, excuse me, uh, we used to live down the street. We're back from Babylon. Can myself and my wife, my parents, her parents, and our 12 kids live with you Indefinitely. You know what they say about relatives, right? If they hang around longer than three or four days, they get to be like fish. They start to smell a bit. But you can imagine they have no place else to go. And it's not just one or two or three people. One of the things that we miss, and your eyes can just scroll down through chapter 2, all of the number upon number upon number, it is 40 to 50,000 Jews that have returned. From Babylon. They are back. And they are changing the character of Jerusalem just by their very presence. And so what they do is they begin to start right away to be faithful to the task that God has given to them. The book of Ezra says that in the seventh month, nearly immediately when they arrived, they began to gather together in Jerusalem. Now, one of the things you have to understand about the seventh month is that it is a very important month in the Jewish calendar. I won't get into all the details because the seventh Jewish month is actually in between two of our months. It's kind of September, October combined in the middle there. But the seventh month is the month in which there are a great many feasts. Some of you know and have heard of Rosh Hashanah. 
the, the Jewish New Year. Then, of course, there is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, occurs in that month. And as we see in just a bit here, there is the Feast of the Tabernacles. It is a very important time when the people of God are to be focused upon the worship of God. And you can imagine, they get here and they see the temple and it is a wreck. Now, the Babylonians burned everything that could burn at the temple. But there was a lot that couldn't burn. They had marble. They had various uh, materials that were not combustible. They would be cracked. They would be worn. There would be grass. There would be weeds growing in the cracks. It would not be a pretty sight. But you could see where the temple was. And you can imagine their feelings. We're here now. We've got to do something. Are we up to the task? What should we do? You could imagine as they were on that four-month journey, they were talking about, oh, we can't wait to get to Jerusalem. Oh, it'll be wonderful. We'll have the Day of Atonement and we'll have all of the festivals and we will gather together and sing and rejoice and we'll have the Feast of the Tabernacles. Won't that be wonderful? And now it's here. Imagine the sight of all of them gathering together to be with each other and the living God. And God in His kind providence does something for them. He reminds them through all of these connections with worship of the reason why they are here. And so they begin right away obedient to God's word. Look at verse 2. They build the altar of God of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. As it is written. Don't let that little phrase pass you by. They didn't gather together as committee to say, what would be the best thing? They didn't say, what can we do to get the most people who are already living here interested in helping us? No, what they did was they went back to God's word. And they saw exactly what God said to do. And they did it. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine if the church in America today looked at God's word with respect to its worship, saw what God wanted done, and did it? If the church of Jesus Christ actually read the Bible every week, preached from the Bible, sang the praises of the living God, offered up heartfelt prayers, confessed their sins. But you see... A good reason why the church in America today is in such disarray is because we have walked away from God's perspective on worship. We have tried to decide what we think is best. And there are whole swaths of the American church where the scriptures are not read during worship. Where sermons are brief comments upon newspaper articles or dialogues. You see, God has laid down for His glory and for our benefit how we are to worship Him. There is a reason why the worship here at Christ Church is as it is. It is not innovative. It is historic. It is not merely the druthers of the elders or the pastors. It is this way because it is laid out in God's Word. And so this is what they begin to do. They 
fix up this altar. Now, and you can imagine this is a monumental task. I think when we talk about the altar, we think about something about as big as our baptismal font. But it isn't. You need to imagine something that is some 40 feet across and 20 feet high with a large ramp leading up to it in which a large flame could rest so that dozens, hundreds of animals could be sacrificed on it hour upon hour. It was a great undertaking. And it was something that they needed to do immediately so that they could offer sacrifices so that they could continue to be right with God. And all of this is occurring, if you can imagine in your mind's eye, outside of the temple proper, because the altar is in the court. They haven't even gotten to the altar proper, or the the temple proper yet. They haven't laid that foundation, cleared it away. They haven't begun any construction. But the very first thing that they do is say, we are concerned about our relationship with God. And they knew that they had sinned. And they knew that they had to repent. And they knew that atonement needed to be made. And so they begin with sacrifice. Is that where you begin in your life? I don't mean, are you going to go home and find a heifer and throw it up on the barbecue and make a sacrifice. I mean, do you begin in your life with your relationship with the Lord? With repentance and confession. And knowing that you can only build on that foundation. That you cannot serve the Lord if you are not right with Him. You see, that is the calling to us. To begin there and be faithful. And they're faithful in difficult circumstances. There's an interesting phrase here. It's, it's striking. When I first read it, I, I wondered if I'd read it aright. Look with me if you would. In verse 3, they set the altar on its place. For fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. They were afraid. Now they had good reason to be afraid. All of the peoples who were around them, the people of Moab, the people of Edom, the Samaritans, they would all have been hostile to these foreigners. They weren't from around here. The vast majority of the pilgrims who returned had never set foot in Israel. They had been born in Babylon. Remember, For many of them, exile had been 50, 60, 70 years long. They had something to fear even from the Jews who were there in Israel. Potential conflict. Why hadn't they been exiled? Had had they been faithful? Why hadn't they worked on the temple? And you see, there is a fear here. And the interesting thing is that the fear drives them to worship God. And I think if we are too quick in studying this text, we look at it and we say, well, that's a really rotten reason to worship God, because you're afraid. You shouldn't be afraid. You should be bold and courageous. Didn't they read the book of Joshua? They should look at it and they should go and worship God. But I think if we do that, we deny the reality of our own lives. Because we're often afraid, aren't we? We're afraid for our future. Afraid for our children. Afraid for those who are around us. Afraid for our nation. And dare I say it, what better thing to do when you are afraid but to go to God? 
It's the perfect thing to do. And you see, that is exactly what they do. The call then comes out to you as well. As you are afraid, as you are struck by all of the circumstances that swirl around you outside of your control, the call to you this moment is to go to God. To find comfort in Him. Security in Him. And there's a wonderful reminder here that God gives to them in the midst of their fear of how frail they are. They celebrate, right at this time, the Feast of Booths. Now, you may not know what the Feast of Booths is, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is sometimes called. So let me give you a visual image in your mind. The Feast of Booths is like a gigantic Boy Scout campout. You know, with the, with the small pup tents, I just had this a few weeks ago. My son and, and someone else from the church set up my tent for me because I have no idea how to do it. And I had all the materials that my, my two boys told me I needed because I had no idea what I needed. And I went and shared a tent with, with my son Paul and we made it out. We survived. We didn't freeze. We didn't get wet. Life was good. And there were, and when we woke up in the morning, all these other tents had dotted the, the area. We had put them up at night. So I didn't notice this. And when we woke up, they were all dotting the area. And there was perhaps a dozen or 15 of them. Now imagine if there were hundreds upon hundreds of these. Imagine if we had a church festival that was camp out in your backyard day. And the reason for it was to remind you that that's where you came from. That you came from a place with no security at all. Where you didn't have a home. Where you had to pitch tent in order to survive. And God had brought you through that and brought you to a place and made you a nation and had constructed a gigantic solid temple. What better way to encourage you to say, the Lord has brought me from tents before. He can do it again. You see, it's the same here with us. As we lament what happens in our nation, as we lament what happens in the state of the church, we need to understand that the Lord has brought us from dark places before. He can do so again. God hasn't gotten older. He hasn't gotten more tired. He is just as capable of bringing revival to this nation as He was in the 18th century. He is just as capable of changing the character of our neighborhoods around us as he was in the 19th century. Do you expect that? Do you pray for that? Do you hope for that? Or are you simply content to watch the glory fade? Because you see, what's required in order to be faithful is work. The Lord has brought them here, but there is work that must be done for this worship. The altar is set up, but six months later what happens in verse 8, in the second year after their coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, that is in the spring, in April-ish, they then come out and they say, now we've got to take the next step. And they have to lay the foundation. Now you have to understand, 
it's not like they have to get out the concrete mixers and lay down the foundation of the temple. The temple foundation is something that couldn't be completely destroyed by the Babylonians, but it is all overgrown with weeds and rocks and twigs. There, it is a mess. And they must go to the hard work first of clearing away all of the junk before they can even start to positively build. And they roll up their sleeves and they go to work. And you can imagine the optimism as they do this, even in little things that happen. Look at verse 7. They know that they need timber and wood. So what do they do? They go to the great redwood area of the Near East. That is Tyre and Sidon. And what they do is they, they trade food and other goods to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring down the cedar trees of Lebanon to build the temple. And the interesting and encouraging thing is the language there is a great echo of what happened when Solomon's temple was built. There's a great irony in that, do you know what month the construction of Solomon's temple began in? The second month. So God is repeating this for them to give them encouragement along the way. And as the work progresses, they see that there's the need for even more work. And they gather together and we see that not only is this a hard task, but we see it's a unifying task. All of the people get behind it. It says all sorts of people, the kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, all of the Jews from the captivity, they gather together and they have an opportunity to give generously. They organize themselves in groups and they begin now to construct this temple. Now, what I don't want you to lose sight of is that this is not an easy task. This reads quickly. And if we're not careful, we look at this and we say, well, you know, they must have spent at least two or three weeks on this. And you see, when we read it that way, anytime anything hard comes to us that takes more than a week or two of effort... We put it aside. We have to realize that they were rebuilding this temple for 20 years. And part of the reason it took 20 years is partway through they gave up. But God would not let them give up. He sent his prophets to them. He sent especially his prophet Haggai, who said to them, you must not stop rebuilding the temple. You must complete this task. It is... At the core of your being as a nation, it is what it means to be a believer in God. Do not give up. To go then back to where we were in the beginning as they're clearing away the foundation of the temple. We see two reactions here. One of great expectation and one of nostalgic disappointment. And if we're not careful, we can fall prey to the latter of these. You see, the first thing that we see is the great expectations of those who are longing to see the temple rebuilt. You can imagine the foundation is laid, huge stones are moved. There is great effort taken here. And there is great excitement about it because you see the temple is more than a building. The temple is where God is. 
And you see, they are not just expecting to see this big building finished. They're expecting to see God show up. They're expecting to see God's grace poured out on them, to see them set aright, to see their land established, to see their families firmly planted, to see the Lord blessing them. And as a result, they continue in this pattern of following God at His Word. Look at verse 10. They laid the foundation, and even their singing is according to the Word of God. According to the directions of David, king of Israel. And then they give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. You can imagine the joy that they felt. How for year upon year, decade upon decade, they might have asked themselves, would this day ever come? They couldn't have imagined it. We're actually here. Can you imagine the smiling, the laughing, the backslapping, saying to one another, pinch me, pinch me, is this really happening? Are we really here? This isn't all a dream, is it? And the joy that has come from knowing that the promises of God are fulfilled. Just as Jeremiah had written in chapter 33, when he said, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at the first. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. The voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of God. And do you know what Jeremiah says they will sing? Give thanks to the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Lord is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Even their song is a fulfillment of the promise of God. But you see, life is hard. And even in the midst of all of this joy, we see a nostalgia And the nostalgia here is not a good thing. There are those who remember the first temple, who remember its glory and its size, and they look and they say, we're not there yet. I don't know if we'll get there. And even if we do, it won't be as good. It can't be as good. And you see, they begin to weep. Because the problem is they are trying to compare the past with what God is doing now. This is a temptation for us. You see, we live in America in the 21st century. I hate to be the one that informs you, but you are not a 17th century Puritan. Even if you buy the black hat, you're not. You do not live in Calvin's Geneva. You are where God has placed you. And while it is good to draw the best from the history of the church and to want to see it occur today, it is wrong to live in the past. It is wrong to live a life that says, oh, I wish today was like this. Because all you will be is disappointed. You must see what the Lord has for you today. 
how He is working today in the church, how He is building His church, because God has not stopped building. He has His work. And even in places where valleys are felt, God is at work. And we can be a part of that building to see the revival that God would bring to His church. It begins with a focus upon worship. It continues with a commitment to work for the kingdom of God. And it is capped by a joy that permeates our very being, knowing that God is at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given to us this example of your people who have persevered in the midst of trouble. We ask, O Lord, that you would make us thankful, that you would help us to persevere, that we might serve you all our days. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.